Welcome to the Alkaline Unplugged podcast. I'm Erin Parazuski, a functional fitness expert and holistic health coach. I am the founder and CEO of Alkaline, a health and wellness company that operates boutique fitness franchises across the U.S. I live in Menlo Park, California with my husband and two young daughters. I am joined by my podcast partner, Kathy Purnell, a master instructor at Alkaline and a former special education teacher. She has three grown daughters and lives in Los Altos with her husband, Jeff. Together, we bring you Alkaline Unplugged, a collection of conversations on a whole host of topics, from experts in the health and wellness field to the real, raw, and human stories of people like you and me. We look forward to bringing you content that will nourish your mind, body, and soul. We thank you for tuning in and look forward to your comments and feedback. If you like what you hear, we'd appreciate a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. As a disclaimer, neither Kathy nor I are licensed medical professionals. The materials and content in this podcast are intended to be general information and are not to be considered a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey, Erin, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm awesome. We are here today with Dr. David Axelrod, who is not only an amazing alkaline instructor uh, client so maybe he'll be an instructor someday someday when he has free time when he has free promise time me. but when he's not alkalining he is also a pediatric cardiologist at stanford university and he's here to just tell us a little bit about himself and all the amazing work he does welcome david thanks for having me you're so welcome tell us a little bit about your job sure so um i'm a pediatric cardiologist um, which means I take care of kids that have heart problems. Um, and then I specialize in intensive care. So I work with kids um, before and after surgery, um, or if they have a critical heart problem that brings them into the intensive care unit, then I'm part of the team that takes care of them. So I would imagine in your role as a pediatric cardiologist, you're not only tending to these small children who have serious issues with their heart, but there's got to be also a huge parent component. Oh, yeah, that's huge. It's a huge part of it is um, really taking care of the whole family, the whole family unit. Um, we have a, a number of patients that come from all over the country and even all over the world. So a lot of them are uprooted and brought here to Stanford for the care of their kids' hearts um, when they're critically ill. Um, and we have a really great team at Stanford that's been able to um, provide resources and also um, allow the docs and nurses to care for these children. Um, that uh, are pretty much in the most stressful part of their, their lives. And not only stressful for them, but stressful for you as the physician. So I guess one of the things I'd love to hear more about is how do you balance the stressful day-to-day job at the hospital with, you know, self-care? Yeah, so that's um, both a topic that's been um, really hit the mainstream media and been really important for hospital administrations across the country, including Stanford. Um, really in the last, I'd say, two or three years, um, the idea of physician wellness or provider wellness and trying to make sure that the people that are taking care of these extremely sick patients, um, children and adults alike, um, are able to both bring their best to, to work and are able to sustain a career over a long period of time. Um, so those initiatives are, have been really important on kind of an administrative broad scale. Um, and then I'd say for me in the last probably two or three years, that's been kind of the personal project is, is getting both my mind and my body, um, in shape 
where I can continue to do this for, you know, more than uh, just a couple of years and then burn out. Yeah. And in a moment, we'll link this back to how we've gotten to know you at Alkaline. But one thing that that just made me think of is when you look at training for medical students, and I've always marveled at the the rigor of that that program and, and the training for physicians and how, you know, sometimes you're on for, I don't know, 24 hours or something. Days. How, how <laughs> can that be good for, actually, how can that be good for you as the physician in training? And how's that for the patient? <laughs> like I, when I go to the hospital, if I am being treated by someone, I almost want to say, how many hours have you been on duty? Because that's a little terrifying. Yeah, that, that's um, a, a really interesting and actually really challenging topic to even kind of get a straight answer for. Um, and that's also changed in the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years in that um, both because of some regulations and also culture changes. Um, there's been a lot of change about how long people can work at one time when they're trainees um, or how many days they need to have off in the period of time if they're working, you know, 15 days straight um, or something like that. What's interesting is that that hasn't necessarily translated to the non-trainees. So the people that are training the trainees, um, there's no restriction to, to what they can work. Um, and it's also, I think, true that the the data that's been collected on the trainees that are doing this newer, presumably kinder way of medical training, it hasn't necessarily borne out that that's made them better doctors, more well-rested. Um, or done a lot of the the positive aspects of what was intended. Um, and then the example I always use is is that you know I was doing these monster twenty four or thirty thirty five hour shifts um, or days uh, you know in training, and they were really really hard. Um, when I was in my twenties, it was hard, but I could kind of do whatever I wanted the next day. And then in my thirties, I needed to have like a little bit of a nap, and I could do whatever I wanted. Um, usually, and now I'm in my 40s, and it like it wrecks the the next day, yeah. and sometimes the day after. So it's been um, kind of a progressively more challenging to recover. Um, but there are other sides that that also lead to fatigue. For example, just the way that medical training is set up, you kind of like come out and get your first job. I mean, I was I think 35 or 36 when I got my first non-training job. Your first paycheck. <laughs> my first like real paycheck that wasn't like essentially um like a stipend yeah pretty yeah. much wow um, it's a long road and you went you went like road. normal path right you did you take time did you go took like, like a year or two in between but not yeah nothing because not like, some people go major. back some people yeah. go late yeah no i went right out of college to medical school and then um just because of what i do it's super super specialized so it, it took a fair amount of training to get there um but one thing I hadn't necessarily thought of is that in that time period, I also had kids. And so, you know, it is true that if you're up working all night in the hospital overnight, you can be exhausted. And there are times when you should not be doing, say, procedures, or even you can make mental miscalculations that can be important. And I think as a community, we've, we've all kind of recognized that and we um, are able to alert each other that, you know, it's time to kind of take a break. Um what I had never thought of is that you can be exactly the same way the next day if you have a newborn, sometimes even worse. Yeah. There were times when we had, you know, I have three kids. So when we had, you know, one baby and two other kids at home, it was actually restful for me to be in the hospital overnight. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to stay the night. I'm actually, I'm yeah. actually on call. I'm just right. going <laughs> to. Um, so, 
that's a real challenge, and I think it does um, impact our longevity, which is really important both for the kind of the field and having people that have that have the experience of having done this for twenty years. Um, it's also financially challenging for the people that are you know hiring physicians. They don't want them to just work for you know you don't want to hire a provider and have them work for five years and burn out. Right. Um, so there are lots of reasons to make this better. Um, well, I guess I'm glad to hear that there is a movement um, to better support, I, I guess I would say, better support those in the medical field and that encouragement of, of really finding that balanced life. So tell us how you, what do you do to balance that very stressful job you have? Yeah, um, I think there's a few kind of key components that allow me to at least understand and kind of work on the stress that the job provides. Um, so some of that is a few of my colleagues that I've become really close with and that do the same job that I do. Um, and we will have either kind of formal, you know, let's have lunch on Thursday and kind of talk about what's going on and how our life is just kind of crazy. And we do things that, that often are not, um, that we don't take a second thought about, but that are really unusual things that had jobs. Um, some of them are, you know, happy and incredible getting kids through incredible surgeries or um, challenges with their heart. And, and others of them are really sad and things that are really hard to work families through. Um, so that's been one part of it. Um, I think the mental health aspect and, you know, working in therapy and being able to like talk to somebody and just kind of dump any anything that happens at my work on someone else and say like, this is, this is what's going on. This is why, you know, I felt not great over the last couple of weeks at work. Um, and then the third part, which has really been, you know, since I met you, Aaron, over the last couple of years has been really kind of like trying to work on getting my body in shape and, um, I guess aligned would be the word to use here today. Um, and also, word. Yeah, I like that word. Um, and also, um, much more flexible, um, physically flexible. My muscles are much more flexible. Um, and that, has allowed me both, you know, physically to be able to work a, a day or in, a night of, you know, 15 hours where I'm on my feet. Um, that in the past was a real physical challenge. Um, and that's gotten a lot better. Um, and then I think also just the kind of the, the mental health aspect of exercise is pretty, you know, ubiquitously known. Everybody knows that. If so you when you're working your on it, on a patient are you constantly thinking about your neutral spine and hearing those alkaline instructors in your head <laughs> sometimes some like taller stretch the crown of your head towards the ceiling pull your abdominals in yeah it's funny some, <laughs> sometimes actually we are one of my colleagues um she is uh goes to classes as well so you introduced her uh, you've introduced I, I a lot of people actually people. including your wife yep that's right Awesome. We all go. We have to sit on separate ends of the classroom yeah. or of the. Of they the pretend studio. like they don't know each other. Is that because you're afraid you're going to chat? No, I think it's just no. because I think if if we were both you know in a really challenging pose and looked at each other, we'd just bust out and you know, yeah. <laughs> laughing. Um, but um, yeah, there are times where we've been at work and we're kind of you know working on things, and then we'll kind of like you know straighten up, or I'll I'll always be joking around and kind of just like grab the hand railing and and do it you know a chair. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Functional and, uh, living. Yeah, it gets it gets it gets some looks from other people that have no idea what we're doing, but um, but it's been fun. Yeah. That's great. Um, what was I gonna ask you? So prior to us meeting, what did you do 
biking or what was your, did you do any form of like, have you, I did, you know, I bike to work. It's like a mile and a half. So you don't really break a sweat. So I, I would say that I was, I was active, but not doing anything formal to really strengthen and bear weight and um, improve flexibility. So when we met, you told me you have, you have had chronic back pain since yeah. you were 16. Yeah, right? 16. So I was playing sports and had an injury to my lower back and had, you know, got x-rays and kind of spent like six months in a back brace as a 16-year-old kid, wow. um, which was kind of bad. Um, and I have what's called spondylolisthesis, which is where one of the vertebrae is slipped forward. And so it's a little bit out of line. It's not that severe. Um, and just got to kind of completed my reevaluation this year. Um, cause I then this year was sledding with my kid and had a, um, compression fracture of, a, of one of my vertebrae. So I had some MRIs and stuff and got confirmed that it's not surgical. It's like, nobody's going to do surgery on this, which is great that I don't want back surgery. Um, but it still hurts, you know, and if I stand for prolonged periods of time, um, it, it's just really sore. So what was your uh, treatment recommendation for that? It was like, keep active, do core exercise, do physical therapy, and, you know, you can do ibuprofen. And some mind, mindset stuff, right? Yeah. Like just, to, how, how to live with it versus, you know, focus on the either I can't do anything with this or, you know, or um, waiting for like the next surgery or the next drug or the something. It's like, okay, there's nothing like, you know, there's no right. surgery. There's no way to fix it i gotta learn how to cope with it right? right and so yeah and so that's kind of getting your head around the fact that um it may not be realistic to expect that you're gonna not have any discomfort or pain in your body especially if you're over the age of i don't know 25 or something um and being able to know you know well how do you manage that how do you think about that how do you like what's your relationship to the pain that you or the discomfort that you have um and knowing that it's it's neither permanent nor um, fixed in character, meaning that like the pain can kind of change the, the way it feels or the way that you respond to it um, and kind of be just being a little more open-minded to working with it rather than saying, well, you know, it hurts now, I want to fix. Let's go, you know, see what I can do to get it fixed. Some things are like that. Um, and then actually in my, in my job, you know, a lot of things are that way. So, you know, you, we'll sometimes joke at work, like, you, you know, you can't fix congenital heart defects with naturopathic therapy. My sister's a naturopath, but like, there's just nothing you can do. You need to have surgery. If there's a hole in your heart that's big enough and important enough, you need to have a surgery to close it. Um, and so, um, but not everything is that way. And so, in fact, most things I would bet, and, and the vast majority of what we spend our healthcare attention on is not that way. Um, and so that's really what I've been working on over the last couple of years, I'd say. Talk about growth mindset. Yeah, exactly. And how has alkaline and taking classes impacted your level of pain? Oh, it's been a huge improvement. Um, I'd say that the first thing I noticed, my flexibility is so much improved compared to, you know, when I first met you, Aaron, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, maybe. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I can pretty easily from standing up straight, could just go straight down and touch the floor um, with no discomfort and really no problem. Whereas I, I had, I was pretty tight in, you know, hamstrings and um, hips and everything beforehand. Um, I had never rolled anything um, as far as a muscle. Um, and so. Um, Do you roll your feet after you've been on your feet for hours and hours? Sometimes. Um, Dave, remember your feet are your foundation. I know that's right. I do need to do that. I'm probably <laughs> doing that right now. Um, it's more. Uh, I'll do back, hips, mm-hmm. um, just because it just it feels, feels great. Yeah, it feels so much better. There's so time. much load. Like when you're standing, there's so much load on the pelvis, like yeah. in that area too. Yeah. And in the low back. Um, yeah, I think too the rolling and the flexibility and the reason why we focus on that so much is. Um, because it makes you more resilient. Like if you're stiff, right? If you're not moving or you're, then your chances of throwing something out of alignment, injured, whatever, you're just, you're like a, you're more like a teacup, you know? And it's interesting because I feel like many people have sort of a fixed mindset around flexibility. We'll have clients come in and say, I'm just not flexible. Like that is forever and evermore. I'm never going to be flexible. And as we know, flexibility and mobility changes depending on what we do, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, and it actually, it, it didn't take very long for me at all to notice that, um, it had really changed the flexibility in my body. Um, for sure. Um, that I kind of, um, toned my whole like core midsection area pretty quickly. I'd say within a couple of months, Um, and that was also around the time when like, I kind of got addicted to the classes. So like I was coming, you know, as much as I could, you know, it felt essentially like physical therapy, but rather than going to like a physical therapist and which has a little bit more of a, um, feeling of people that are unhealthy or rehabbing surgeries rather than preventative. Yeah. Um, and and plus, much more on like usually like the acute acute exactly yeah where um, it's like where do you go after physical therapy right right and, and you I also mean, you don't want to go back to like the thing that injured you or but the... most people probably do yes right and then they no, wonder they why do. they're back in physical therapy again no, without know. changing i know it's yeah. like the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and <laughs> expecting different results like right. if you keep going back and that happens all the time it's like well i i mean it happens I, it happens a lot at alpine where someone will have an acute thing they can't do whatever else it is they wanted to do. They'll come to us for a period of time, feel great. And they're like, great, I'm rehabbed. I'm going to go back to my, you know, marathon runner or whatever. And it's instead of embracing the holistic approach, which is like, hey, come here a couple times a week and go running a couple times a week. They just completely turn off the, and then it might not be immediate, but pretty soon thereafter you start, I think you kind of take for granted when you, when you are in, you know, when you're alkaline, like when you're alkaline shape, how great you feel. And then you go on vacation or you get busy at work or whatever it is, like life happens and you don't, or you go, you pick up a new hobby because the fitness industry is very much, um, it's very fad based and there's always, yeah, there's always something new trying to pull you away. Like try this, you know, all the marketing is around the, you know, the flash and the fad and trying to lure you into doing something else. So people bounce around from one thing to the other. But one thing I've noticed with Alkaline is a lot of people, I won't say everybody, but like most people come back, you know, they end up getting injured somewhere else. And they're like, Oh, I forgot what it was like to live 
without pain. That was pretty nice. Let me go back to that. I mean, I notice it just if I'm not that I go away for long periods of time, but when I, even if I'm gone for like four days, I start stiffening up and I don't quite feel, and my mood is yeah, I can Not definitely feel like, that. Yeah, oh, the connection mm-hmm. between exercise and your mental health is massive, and I think, um, I, I think it's shifting. And like you said, you know, at the hospital, they're making more of an effort to acknowledge that and to support that. But um, I think we still have room to grow on in that area. Just that that whole mindset. So often we have clients who feel horribly guilty about spending that one hour on themselves, whereas I've often said when I'm clean, it will be it, part of healthcare is Queen Kathy. Queen I Kathy, like that. would that be All good? Right. I was going to say president, <laughs> but who wants that job? Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, but that it would be covered under your health insurance. It's preventative. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I definitely got over the um, the guilt over the hour for myself pretty quick. Good. Um, just because I, I realized that it was, it was so much easier for me to, um, to, be more productive or to be more relaxed or be more, you know, um, available if I kind of got that hour to just sweat it out. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you're doing like really important work, but I say that's true of anybody. Like I'm a better mom. And I tell my kids, like, I will be a happier mom and more available to you if you cooperate for an hour so I can go take class. Right. I think it's true for anyone. And it's just sad that in the medical profession, you're literally taking care of everybody else. And, like and I also think like for you, else. you're modeling it for your children, for you as a physician, you're modeling it to your patients, like telling them it's important, you know, for the parents, I would imagine there's a certain amount of, you know, you're witnessing their struggles under intense pressure. And I would imagine that you have that ability to say, go take an hour to yourself. Yeah, no, we say that to them all the time. You know, I'll say, the most common thing I say to the, to the parents at the you know beginning of their hospital stay is that this is a marathon, not a sprint. So mostly for them, that means that they need to get sleep and eat and not try and, you know, sit at their, their child's bedside 24 seven, because you'll go crazy if you do that. And people actually do, there's a phenomenon called ICU psychosis, which is when you sit in the intensive care unit and you hear everything beeping and buzzing and it's a there's a 24-hour work cycle right so it's i mean it's a little bit like a casino there's no you know no day night difference really um and your sleep gets all out of whack and so it can be pretty taxing on the body um so yeah i mean i think you know we try to model that for them um i think the other group as well that that i try to model it for is our trainees who are kind of training to do what we do um, but maybe a little bit, usually a little bit younger, um, and are in the throes of either, you know, many of them are starting a family or kind of have young families. And, um, it can just be really overwhelming to know, you know, how can you, you know, have a family life, have a super intense job and take care of yourself. And a lot of that is, um, is very challenging. And I think there, there's tons of ways that people kind of, you know, funnel the stress of these jobs into um, less healthy practices, Yeah, you know. Wow. I was telling you before we started recording that my middle daughter is a pediatric transplant nurse at Seattle Children's. And at some point, I'd love for the two of you to get to. Yeah, sure. Yeah. 
Well, she'll be in town coming up. She will oh, for she, a hot She'll be kind of busy. She's going to be busy. Her older sister's getting married. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's not that far away. Um, okay, so I want to go back to how David and I met. We met through, I have kind of a um, ongoing dream with Alkaline, kind of, you know, I don't know, another another thing I'd like to pursue, which is going to require a lot of funding. So if anybody's listening and wants to <laughs> invest, you let me know. I'll send you my business plan for that. Um, but it's something I've had uh, for in my head for a long time. And in just talking to our awesome alkaline community, who's like everybody's so interesting and knows interesting people. One of our um, clients said, oh, well, you have to talk to David Oxlerod, he developed the virtual heart at Stanford. So, which is just so cool. Yeah, thanks. No, like, I know the guy who developed the virtual cool. heart. That's so cool. Okay, yeah, tell us great. about that. Sure. Um, I should say I co-developed it. So I, I helped the team um, at a company called Lighthouse um, that I'm now a part of. Build. Yeah, so in his spare time, he's also mm-hmm. in... <laughs> He's, uh, which, what's your other, you gave me originally your, that business card. Oh yeah. <laughs> the um, Moonlights uh, as like a. The lead medical advisor for this. For a this VR company. company. Yeah. It's a VR education company. So yeah. they, they, we build, um, VR experiences for, um, both, you know, high school STEM, um, classes. So, um, people learning about, um, science and biology and life sciences. Um, we actually just got a grant from the, both the NIH and the um, Department of Education to do to build some of those programs, which are really fun. Um, and then uh, the, I, my involvement started with it in building the Stanford Virtual Heart, which is basically it's a virtual reality um, experience where you can kind of go inside um, the environment of congenital heart defects and you can kind of inspect them from the outside and um, the heart beats and moves and you can then go inside it and um, you can hear the heart sounds uh, that correlate to different heart defects um, basically to train and educate people about um, the problems that we take care of clinically Um, so for parents to understand you know what's their child's heart look like what's the surgery that we're going to perform um, but really mostly for the trainees and students that come from, you know, all over the world, because it's, we're really lucky at Stanford, we have an amazing program and draw trainees from everywhere. Um, and they are expected to learn an immense amount of information really quickly. It's a really steep learning curve. And so, um, we developed this in part to kind of get them a little bit up that learning curve, um, to, to help kind of get them into this immersive, um, VR educational environment. And you said it was more, this virtual environment's been proven to be more effective than a, like a cadaver. So we're, part of the um, important part that we're working on now is actually proving that, proving the educational value of a lot of the VR programs, both that we're making, but also kind of the whole community in the last, I'd say, two or three years has really um, exploded. And um we're, it's really important to us to get data to show that, yes, you can learn in VR. Um, yes, that you can learn and get some information, especially from kind of a visual spatial learning aspect that we think is better than traditional methods. Um, but we're still working on proving that just because it's still kind of early days. I mean, just intuitively, it seems like it would be. I mean, we say at Alkaline all the time because we, we, we teach and train in different um using different things, you know, you can modalities, modalities. And 
my experience has been people um, learn best by seeing and doing. And I got a chance to demo this heart. I'm like, wow, if I had had this in um, high school, it, it's just so much. I'm a visual and a somatic learner. So being able to be in that experience is just so much more. I mean, I, I learned science from a textbook. Yeah. And some, you know, Ben Stein teacher, like, you know, yeah. droning away about, you know, from primal blue. Is that what they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've, we've gotten that the kind of two biggest compliments that we get um, from people, which is outstanding to hear is from kind of the, um, the tech community um, is when they use the virtual heart or they'll kind of, um, you know, demo it for a few minutes and they'll say, geez, you know, if I had had that in high school or in college, I might have gone to med school. Yeah, that's um, which how is I really feel. cool. And then the, the medical community, most people say, you know, I really wish I'd had that when I was in med school because it, it makes it so much clearer. Um, so we get those testimonials all the time. And, now and I would think for parents, too, to be able mm-hmm. to actually see, you know, what what that defect looks like and why it's important. To- and, to, and to be empowered, like educated and empowered to, you know, just I, I would think from like a fear and anxiety and the fear of the unknown and not what's going on. Like if you I don't know, I always feel like if I can educate myself on whatever situation I just feel like more in control which is yeah. that's a situation where it's something wrong with your kid and you feel everything's so out of your control so if you can really understand yeah. like that's amazing that's probably you should do a um see if you can do a study of like reduct reduction in you know depression anxiety, anxiety fear, whatever in parents of yeah. a patient right yes. you have two yeah. patients you have yeah. the kid yes, and the parent right yeah and we thought about you know um and some of the people i work with at stanford have done similar things like that with different vr applications looking at kind of anxiety levels and even going so far as to look at like blood cortisol levels and things and so um i think we're all really interested in looking at that um we've had you know we we expect our parents as well to kind of understand pretty complex both just defects, but also a lot of the times the surgeries, sometimes multiple surgeries we need to do for these kids. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, I, I kind of sometimes will show people the pictures of the way that we do it traditionally, which is that I kind of draw something on this whiteboard um, or on a piece of paper. And it's this flat kind of not very well done, um, barely. Did you minor in art? <laughs> yeah, not so much. Um, and, you know, the funny thing is that um, we actually had one of the parents come back uh, to look at our VR heart and to kind of interact with it um, about, I'd say, a year ago. After their child went through something? Yeah, this child is about seven and has had three surgeries now. Yeah. Um, and so when, you know, the mom came and she, you know, was interacting with the VR heart and just said, this is such an improvement, so amazing to be able to understand it in this way. And she actually brought with her the, the actual paper copies of what we had drawn her when her child was born. Because it's like their kids, you know, it's part of their kids' history and life. And yeah. part of their kids' kind of... chills. Like, yeah. Well, and also in those moments where a parent is receiving news that is hard to hear, and then your job is to explain to them what's going to happen next, I, I can imagine that it would all sound like wah, 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 wah. Like, yeah. I wouldn't be able to process. They don't hear. No. Usually, you know, I'll even say that to them when we're, when, when we're talking to some parents. Like, I was just doing this last last week um and i said to the parents you know we're going to go through kind of what's going on and what our plan is um we'll take our time and you know over 
the course of maybe 40 minutes kind of described everything to them. And then somewhere in the middle there said, we pretty much expect you're going to forget about 80% of what we're saying. You just, that's just, that's what happens. Right. Um, and sometimes that's a challenge because um, then you can get different providers or, you know, a surgeon and a, and a doctor or a different surgeon and come in and, and the parents may not be on the same page as the whole team. And it's a big team. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we hope this will be a small part of that. Um, it has to be kind of timed right. It has to be used in the right way. And so we're in the process of developing all of those tools and making sure that um, we've kind of put this educational pedagogy into it as well so that there's really, it's more than just a kind of really neat, fun, cool toy um, that's that sits in the corner and gathers dust, you know, five years from now. Which is what a lot of, I think, VR is. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, you know, it's like anything, there's a hype cycle with yeah. with new technologies. Um, which you have to kind of acknowledge, um, but I think you can also use it. You can kind of use that to kind of get people excited and interested. And um, I think based on a, a lot of the feedback we've seen from a, a number of our students or trainees, I think that within, say, three or five years, I think students are, are going to kind of demand this kind of in, immersive, interactive learning. Um, as we meaning the whole community, the whole educational community starts to show that you can actually learn better and retain well, for I mean, longer. You think about like, I'm, I mean, I only have a, my oldest is going into fourth grade and the way that she's learning, the way she's learning math and the way it's very um, conceptual and it's, it's not rote memorization, which is the way I learned everything. And right. so those kids, right, are now going to be these you know, medical students and residents, right? I don't Hopefully know what critical point. thinkers as opposed to just regurgitating. Right. Data. So, I mean, you know, if you, if, if my daughter grows up to, you know, be a pediatric cardiologist, which probably she will be, she really, is not. <laughs> <laughs> she's not like, and you throw a textbook at her, like it has to evolve through like, you know, the generations, like the style, but I'm, I'm always fascinated by the way they, like I'll volunteer in the classroom sometimes. I'm like, this is so so different like, so different yeah so different than it used to be and i don't know at what point it shifted but it just makes sense that it would continue and technology i mean that's the I, there's a lot of things that are not great about technology but oh my gosh if you can leverage technology for the good and for education and you know I mean, that's amazing and you can take like the brilliance that's come out of stanford and all these individuals that are so highly trained and expand that to you know, more and more people, families, other medical, you know, other, um, you know, hospitals and things. Yeah. I mean, I think if you think about the education possibilities, the scalability yeah. of that yeah. is. And we've seen, you know, we've kind of watched as some of that you know, similar paradigms have, have developed in education. I'm not an educational specialist, but, um, you know, when I was starting college, um, it was about finding data and references in a library and photocopying them. Um, Getting the microfiche. <laughs> exactly. Um, yep. And then by the time <laughs> I finished or like maybe a couple, couple of years after or whatever, like you could, you could access whole reams of libraries to the point where I, you know, I don't think kids really even know what an encyclopedia really is anymore. Yeah, I mean, I had to go to like the card catalog yes. and like find this. Yeah. <laughs> yes, back in the Stone Age. Yeah. I'm actually intimidated to go to the library because I'm like, I won't know the system. Is it? Do you still do a desk? I don't know how to find anything. Um, so I think, 
um, it'll be interesting to see kind of as the um, technology gets more accepted, as it's easier to kind of get these kinds of applications into something that's as ubiquitous as your smartphone. Um, for the um, for VR? V- VR, AR, yeah. So Oh, with like the Oculus. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, um, is what are um what are the biggest points of resistance on this type of thing? Just that it's different and people don't like change, or um, there's a few different points. I think that's one of them. Um, I think um, we ran into a, one of the really interesting ones. I'll just mention because I think it's uh, kind of unique to what we do. We ran into a few people kind of asking questions about, well, like, whoa, are you looking to replace the cadaver? Meaning, like, you know, medical students. One of the kind of really important and transformative experiences is dissecting a a mm-hmm. deceased human um where you you know you learn um an incredible amount about the body you, and how you just do that once or you do that once usually if most you're a standard schools, medical but if you're a cardiologist you get to do that just more. once you do it as a really? medical student yeah. well like how good can you be at anything if you only do it once yeah well it's it's a little hard it's it's a very costly process i think for the yeah, medical and schools that, and you think the organs are hard to yeah, it's there. There are some um, organ my, based. I'll donate my heart directly to you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't do that. Um, <laughs> um, there's there's a few that are like organ based. So some places have you know uh, kind of a library of actual congenital heart defects for patients that you know that died, and you can learn from those too. Um, but I thought that was interesting when people felt. I guess I could say maybe a little threatened by, you know, new technologies. And it's not just ours. There, you know, there are a number of other programs building things to learn. I would see it more as like supplemental. That's kind of what we were going for saying, you know, this is an adjunct. This is something to help people be able to interact with something that's, you know, moving, beating. They can do things with it that you can't ever do with a real person or or a cadaver. Um, And I think in part why that's important is because the cadaver experience, like I said, like is is this transformation that people that students go through you kind of start out as a civilian or like a normal person right and you kind of go into the, the first anatomy class and by the time you finish that after eight or ten or twelve weeks you kind of come out and you're i think a lot of people feel different like most people don't get to do that to kind of look at a human being that way and there um, must be a quick switch from this was a human to this is you know, a, an organ that we need to understand better how it, because the thought of me looking at a cadaver. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that goes into kind of the process of making sure you're respectful to the person's body. And then, you know, I remember in medical school, we had a, um, there was like a ceremony of vigil at the end of it with all the families of the deceased people that were at the, they donate the body to science mm-hmm. and then they, they get the invited body. to the oh, that's, that's right. cool. Yeah. Actually my yeah, dad my dad cool. is gonna is signed up to do that. When, Where when was he this? Um Ohio State, Columbus, Ohio. Is that the, like, is, the Ohio State? The Ohio State. <laughs> is there I wonder is that kind of normal? I would I love think a, yeah, a lot of places do that. Um I've seen the um I like I probably saw it on Facebook or something how they, when a patient um, has donated their organs, they do that honorary walk where the whole staff at the hospital, right. where they wheel the gurney out and it's very, it's silent and very respectful and honoring that person. Oh, that's, who that's, for, yes. that's usually for like an organ donor for transplant. Wow. Yeah. So if someone, you know, is an organ donor and, and 
they which we all should be in my humble opinion i'm not gonna yeah. i don't need these organs anymore once i'm gone no People, i want and i've taken good care of them yeah yes. someone's gonna someone's gonna, gonna get this shape. <laughs> yeah That's someone right. can have my pink pink lungs and my exactly right yeah so oh um, that's crazy. I didn't know. I didn't. That's like a whole other. We need to find an organ yeah. um, transplant specialist and do a whole podcast on that. Oh, I, I work with some of them, so I can. I great, can confirmed. Yeah, yeah. That's, I didn't. That's a whole world. I didn't. Yeah, I I could see that um, being the the cadaver heart being a rite of passage that people are. But I mean, I think if you're gonna work on a real heart, you should dissect a real heart. But yeah. like, I think the thing about this technology is that. You know, you get one chance to do to work on that heart. Like, if you go back, you can practice over and over. And I'm right. someone that like believes. I mean, the brain's the muscle too. Like, you got to exercise and you have to practice over and over. Even with our um, alkaline instructor training, we have everything in a, a captured video. You know, it's not VR, but someday it might be if I get that funding. Um, but we have like we can go back and we tell our instructors like you aren't expected to absorb everything all at once. You can keep going. Seven years back later, and, I still go back to things if I am yeah. tired of teaching the same. The value of, of having that somewhere where you can reference yeah, it is absolutely. so. Um, plus, for me, from like a you know anxiety standpoint, I'm like I'm a furious like note taker. Right. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what if I miss something? Right. I have to right. go back and. So knowing it's there and it's captured and then you can go back and reference it. And even from like the parents, right? If they've got like something on their phone, they can, you know, if they're in this fog and they're not, they can't hear anything you're saying to be able to go back to something. And yeah, I think that's, that's kind of part of what we're trying to get to and kind of getting people the experience of learning almost the way that kids do, which is that they kind of just jump into a puddle of mud and then that's how they learn about, you know, yeah. That's how they learn about dirt and, you know, worms or whatever it is that they're 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 playing with um and i think that the educational community and especially around things like simulation education which you know i I did a little bit of work in but is not really my area of expertise um but that community has definitely learned that the repetition allowing people to do um simulations of real events um either you know aeronautical or my brother's been in um flight school and yeah. he does all a lot of his stuff on a simulator yeah yeah fascinating well thank good i mean like if you're gonna fly a plane right you want to practice before you get up there and you've got like some people on board it's the same thing i yeah. mean i want my cardiologist or surgeon or whomever to be very well versed before they yeah. um, and very well rested before very are right. there other um areas of the body where you're working on similar technology or we've um interacted with a few groups that wanted to do different kind of vr educational programs either one that's really popular that people have talked about is doing the brain because it's such an yeah. amazing organ that um it seems to me we still don't know a lot about um so that's one that we've kind of considered um and then there are a number of others that that people have kind of brought to us with proposals to work on it's just really more a question of time energy and money and you know being able to to kind of take all the different projects so do they come um would someone have to come to you with funding and usually to well not to get the conversation started i mean a lot of times we'll kind of see what things we can use that we've already built and kind of what people would want to do with their particular area of interest um but yeah i think it's to build VR programs that are 
educational and, and what I think are really high quality and that have been kind of recognized as a really innovative and beautiful and interactive and really fun way to learn. Um, you know, we hired a number of people that work in our company that are really amazing software engineers um, and are able to create these experiences with us. And it takes a lot of time and energy. Um, and so the kind of uh, result of that is that, you know, it's not cheap. You can't do this for a few hundred dollars. Um, so How much does it cost? How much money am I going to have to raise to execute on my idea? It kind of depends on what you Which want. Which is super stealth. I can't tell you what it is because someone will take my idea. Yeah, I just right. want your money. Not your <laughs> <laughs> it depends on what you want to build. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you want to build um, something that's really complex and will last a number of years. Um, I want to do something that's more targeted towards um, the, like the consumer, the end mm -hmm. user, not really probably mostly for like like a medical not as sophisticated as the virtual heart where you're like oh my gosh it's life and death i need to get in there and right. learn it more something that's more because i think what we do at offline is so beneficial but we only have so much reach right we only right. have a certain amount of studios and a certain number of spots in each studio and i want to be able to share that education um because i think it is so impactful we have had such amazing results and reductions of you know reduction of pain and injuries and um just you know improve just improve quality of life with so many people we've had like i'd love to extend that reach um so i'm thinking it would be something that's like on your phone that the right. you know layperson can use and i think one of the things that would be cool with your work that that you do if we were able to connect it with VR, and I know people are working on this, especially in some of the, the labs for the people making the hardware, is having kind of certain parts of your body, like specifically, say, your knee and your ankle, that have some kind of tag on them that then the VR system can pick up and to kind of respond to. You know, because yeah. that's a big one, right? You're doing some, yeah. some position Key parts of the kinetic chain, right? right? And if shoulders, yeah. Shoulders, right. So, you know, you could probably pinpoint, you know, five or six spots in the whole body. And, yeah. Because it all goes together. I mean, I can tell, like, if if you just dissected someone's butt, not actually dissected, but, like, you just gave me, you know, like, one quadrant of someone's body, I can tell, like, what what, what else would be out of alignment just based right. on that one point, right. right? Well, if your hip's like that, it means your knee's like that, and probably your toe's like that, right? I've, like, studied. Alkaline's my lab. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you are my lab rats. No. <laughs> <laughs> right? Study movement. But I think it would be. Okay, so how much would that cost me? Give me a quote. Oh my, gosh. oh my gosh. I'll give you the quote. I would have to take it back to my team and then we'll we'll discuss okay. it. And, we'll take and it offline. Get you an official quote. But this is um <laughs> wait, okay. So for your if anyone's listening and has an idea and they want to talk to your company, your lighthouse it's right, it's lighthouse light, it's H A U S, uh, right? right? L I G H T H A U S. Lighthouse. Lighthouse. Uh, Dot us oh couldn't guess it.com yeah. could you but you can look up <laughs> you can look up the stanford virtual heart and you'll kind of work your way through um that's fantastic awesome. yeah. that's so cool yeah i know like, you must wake up every day like damn i've contributed to the world yeah. well and it's but just I another great example of and part of the reason why aaron and i wanted to do this podcast to begin with is we come in contact with the most interesting people every single day and it's like i i just want to talk to them a little bit more and then give our audience an opportunity to actually learn more too so now you're going to be a total rock star at oh. and also probably a rock star at stanford if i mean even more so of a rock star no you know it doesn't necessarily feel rock star status but 
but it's fun. It's a, it's a good well, time. I think also when you do something that's like, you know, that's your passion day to day, you're like, you kind of take it for granted. But then when you step, you know, you take a step back, you're like, oh, that is yeah. pretty cool. That's what I was talking about with my the co- a couple of colleagues that are you know, really important to kind of have those moments with. Like, yeah. hey, we just went through this week. And if you kind of look objectively or you try to look objectively at what, what just happened, what we just did. Like this is this is really exciting and um, challenging and um, unusual. Well, you're really giving unusual. parents hope who, you know, left untreated. The outcome would probably not be so great for a lot so, of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's doing just, things that they can't do in most places in the you know country, much less the, the world. Um, feel free to adopt our. Um, we have a family gratitude practice, which we're going to start incorporating more in other parts of Alpine, which is every night at the dinner table, we do our highs and lows, like what went well, you can do it for the day or the week, or we do it daily. Um, what we're grateful for, and what we're most looking forward to. But I think it's a good way in any situation, whether it's like, you know, like, it's funny, because I can have like a rough day or something. And then you're like, is that even a low? Like, it just puts everything in perspective, right? Yeah, we have friends who call it the rose and thorn. Yeah, so my my, um, sister and her um, brother-in-law they do roses and thorns and then instead of what they're looking forward to they do buds like oh, yeah. Bud. oh. Yeah. yeah we tried to we we blended the two this past weekend and my kids were like rose and a thorn they couldn't i was like it's the same just highs and lows same <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were they couldn't quite like translate the but yeah it is like it's so simple but just being able to like talk about it and taking that time to acknowledge or to acknowledge like, wow, I'm really stressed. And then having that community of people who understand, you know, what you're going through. Like, I mean, it's great for, like, we have a community of instructors. We have a community of clients. I have a community of other entrepreneurs. We get together. And you, because sometimes you feel like you're all alone. You're the only one that's experiencing, you know, stress or depression. or And you look at other people and you're like, you know, and then you actually yeah. break it down. And I mean, my, yeah, my colleague that I work with really closely will do and alkaline class and then we'll go get coffee next door and then sit and kind of like talk for an hour yeah i mean that's so i mean i think it's pretty important i mean i think obviously exercise and eating right and taking care of your physical body is important but even when we do our nourish program which is kind of like our holistic um health coaching program the pillar we have five pillars there eat move sleep hydrate and connect is the fifth pillar because that's the thing if you're not connecting with people you know, you're disconnected. That happens a lot too, I think, in like um, disease states right. or, you know, people retreat and they lean out instead of leaning in. Um, but that connection is so undervalued and so important. So having that like colleague connection, family connection. It's really important. Do you, yeah. um, your wife is a pediatric nurse, nurse practitioner. practitioner. Right? Do you talk a lot of shop? Not home, usually. Or? Not usually, actually. She's her job is interesting in a totally different way. She um, works at San Francisco General Hospital, Zuckerberg San Francisco General now, um, and um, she does a lot of the foster care for city and county of. That's going to be super stressful. We're going to have her on too. Yeah, yeah, Jess. Really different um, types of stress, but um, sometimes I mean she'll she'll kind of come home with these stories about the social situations some of the kids are in, which is just makes you feel. I'm very fortunate to kind of have a stable home and family um, for our kids. Yeah. Um, but she also works in an environment that the, the team atmosphere at that hospital is kind of like no, none other I've 
ever worked in. Um, I was there as a trainee. Mm. Um, and I, mean, I think anybody who's worked there for more than a couple of days just feels that that place is like one huge team is the way I remember. That's it. amazing. Um, and that's how Jess feels about it. So, so that's a huge source of strength. All right. Let's get her lined up for podcast soon. Yeah. Oh yeah. I got her number. Great. Um, was interesting. Like, so interesting. So fascinating. Thanks um, for having me. Well, thanks for yeah, joining thanks us. for being here. And if you're um, looking for David, you can find. Hopefully, you'll never need his services for your children because it's serious business. But he and his awesome team are at Stanford, and then for the VR stuff, Lighthouse US. All right, thanks, thanks Dave. Look forward Thank to you. seeing you in the studio soon. All right. Thank you for joining another episode of Alkaline Unplugged. As a reminder, please leave us a review on Apple iTunes or wherever you're listening. Comments, feedback, and requests or suggestions for future guests can be emailed to info at alkalinestudios.com. We look forward to hearing from you.